Thanks, Jess, for sharing. Reading the Word of God. Let's open up in a bit of prayer. Lord, as we come before you, Lord, this day, we simply ask that you have your right of way within our hearts, that your word fulfill the work that it's intended to fulfill. Lord, as we as simple sowers, uh, sowing seed, not knowing where it will fall and what it will produce, Lord, the results are in your hands. Lord, let your name today be glorified. Lord, let your people today, Father, be edified. And we thank you in advance for all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. As Jess shared, today we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, from verses 17 to chapter 3, verses 13. And the scriptures are going to be in the New Living Translation, unless otherwise stated. One of the things that has bewildered me over the years is how language changes and does so continuously. When I first came to the Lord, I had to have a dictionary to understand a lot of the words that were presented or the words that I came across in the 1800s King's English. It was an interesting learning experience and the depths of the words were fascinating. This isn't the place or the time to go into depth on this specific topic because some of the words I can give as examples would sound otherwise offensive unless I explained the original meaning and how history changes words. So a specific example would be the word gay. To quote an older version of 1828 Webster's Dictionary, gay means adjective, merry, airy, jovial, sportative, uh, frolicsome. It denotes more life and animation than cheerful. When did it change? In the 1960s, gay became the word favored by homosexual men to describe their sexual orientation. Another word is the word meek. I remember I was doing a mentoring session and one of the questions given to me through the testing process was, how would you describe yourself? One of the words I was allowed to choose from was the word meek. So I chose meek and my mentor was shocked because she was a bit baffled as to why I would call myself weak. I responded, that's not what meek means. Meek means power under control. It's the picture of a horse that's been trained. I went on to say Jesus was meek. As he was dying on the cross, he could have called down legions of angels from heaven. But he was doing the Father's will, giving his life so you and I could live. She understood meek to mean something completely different due to her psychology training. And then our next session, she brought this topic up again and mentioned that she did some research and she was surprised at what the original meaning of meek was. Now this is only a few basic examples of how time and history can alter the original meaning of a word. So what does this have to do with our portion of scripture? Well, the word and theme that jumps out in our portion of scripture is the word love. But as my other examples, this word has also lost its original meaning. I've heard the word love used so many 
times in so many different ways, almost like a throwaway word. I love pizza. Oh, I'd love to watch that movie. Love it. So cool, man. The ancient Greek language was very illustrative of the word. And when I did some research, I found up to eight different types of love used in the ancient Greek. A few of them examples like eros, erotic, romantic, sexual love. Agape, God's love towards us, our love towards God. Filio, friendship, fondness, affection, delight. An example of multiple uses of the word love can be found in John chapter 21, verses 15, when Jesus is restoring Peter. And you can see both the words agape and filio being used as Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? And Peter goes, Lord, you know that I love filio you. Jesus then asks the same question, and Peter then responds in the same manner. And then Jesus comes down to where Peter was at in encouragement and says, Peter, do you filio? And, and Peter responds, Lord, you know I filio, love you. Now, that's a message for another day, but just a quick example of scripture and, and the uses of the word love. And the last example I'd like to mention today is actually the word brotherly love. Now, the word brotherly love comes from two words. Philadelphia is, is the word that's actually uh, arranged or the new word. But it comes from two words. It comes from filio, as we already described, and adelphos, meaning brother. Together, it's brotherly love. And a Christian by the name of William Penn was looking for a place that he can worship to avoid religious persecution. So he created the place called Philadelphia, a city of brotherly love. And I brought all this up because I'd like to talk about brotherly love today. The main idea behind brotherly love is the love for others. And Paul in our portion of scripture describes how much he wants to be with them as he paints a picture of a mother and a father in his feelings towards this church. In verses 7 we read, we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. In verses 11, and you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. Paul is expressing his heart and thoughts, desire for this church shortly after he was separated from them. And it's actually interesting how Paul uses both the picture of a mother and a father in this letter. Because as a good parent, whether you're a mom or whether you're a dad, you actually really don't need rules to force you to take care of your kids. Now, we may not understand all that's required as a new parent. Can anybody say amen to that one? Because we know it's a very steep learning curve. But as a parent, we desire what's best for our children. And we will do what's needed to take care of them, loving them, nurturing them, and putting the boundaries in place. We see in here that Paul in verse 11 writes in the New King James Version, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. This word charged in the original Greek is materio. It's where we get the word martyr or witness. That word is interchangeable. He's encouraging them to have a good testimony. The same thought is applicable to us today as believers in the church. We are exhorted and comforted called upon, asked, 
implored, invited to have a good testimony in this world. For us to be a good witness means that we are in fact a martyr. We are willing to lay down our lives for the gospel even to the point of death. When I grew up in Canada, we had many cultural communities. We had suburbs that were known as Little Italy or, or Chinatown or the Jewish and the Greek communities. And it was interesting that these communities were established when immigration opened up into those respective countries for various types of reasons. And I remember Mama sharing with me that she had a choice when she was leaving Yugoslavia. She had a choice between Canada and Australia. And the funny thing is I'm now Yugoslavian, Canadian, Australian. And it's interesting because if you're an immigrant to Australia, you would have a desire to have and find community. Think of it, even here in Melbourne, you have the Springville community, which is mainly Vietnamese. You have Clayton, which is mainly the, the Chinese community, or the Sudanese community, which you can find in Dandenong, or, or the Jewish community, which you can find in Elstonwick, and so on and so forth. And you can see communities of cultural groups staying in proximity to one another. Why? Because we look for people with similarities to ourselves. There is a saying, birds of a feather flock together. It brings a sense of comfort. We're looking for a sense of home. This is the reason why we as Christians long to be with one another. Our citizenship is not of this world. We are citizens, in fact, of heaven. And Peter encourages us and says we are sojourners and strangers in a strange land, simply passing through, as the scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among the unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. You are temporary residents and foreigners. The, the New King James Version renders verse 1 as beloved. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. As we are strangers in a strange land longing for a home which is heaven. Why? Because when you're born again you become citizens of heaven. Longing to go home and wanting to take as many people with you as possible. It, it paints a picture of someone pleading with you. Please don't do it. Please don't do it. Please don't do it. Others are watching. This is where the persecution begins. You, you are granted new citizenship when you bend your knee to Christ and are born again. The battle starts flesh against the spirit, this world against the new one. So why did Paul write this letter? I'm going to start with this, just a little bit of history, just to give you some context. In the first two letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, it is believed that 1 Thessalonians was Paul's first letter written to the churches 21 years after Christ's death, even before the other Gospels. And the subject theme focused here is on the end times. I find that to be really interesting in itself because the, the church was a new work, very young in the Lord. 
And we actually see how the church was started in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, the scripture says, Paul and Saul then traveled through the towns of Amphilios and Ampolion and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was uh, Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. Now, Thessalonica was a capital of a Roman colony during Paul's second missionary journey, which is actually today a modern-day Salonica. That's my pronunciation, and it's probably incorrect. It's actually the capital of the geographic region of Macedonia. Now, later on in Acts chapter 17, verses 10, we read that Paul and Silas had to flee by night to Berea because of the plots against them. So that gives you a bit of a context. So Paul's reaching out to the Thessalonian church because news came to him after he had to escape only three weeks after he started this ministry. And that news concerned him. And we read that in chapter 3, verses 5, that the tempter had tempted him and that the work that they made or accomplished was in fact in vain. After Paul and Silas escaped, Timothy was sent back to the Thessalonians as we read in chapter 3, verses 1 and verses 5. Why? Because they can no longer endure it, not knowing what was happening to the church. Like, like I shared earlier, like a parent missing their newborn child, wanting to know how they were doing. And when Timothy returned with good news in verses 6, they were comforted in verses 7. So Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to bring instruction, encouragement, and to help them stand strong. Over the years, I've heard reasons why people don't go to church or why they stop going to church. There was no love in that place was one of the reasons. Or all they want is money. Money, 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 money. That's all they talk about. And the interesting thing I've noticed over the years is a lot of time and resources is spent on getting people into the church. How do we get people to church? This in essence isn't wrong as we desire to reach the lost But the interesting thing I've noticed is not much time and resources is spent on church community. I have a simple saying that I believe and I've learned when I came to the Lord in the 90s by Chuck Smith, that we preach to the unsaved and we teach the saved because healthy sheep reproduce themselves. So what is the strategy in reaching a lost and dying world? Well, we know what the scripture says. The scripture says in Romans chapter 10, verses 15, and how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. We know this and we also read in verses 16 in the New King James Version, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But were you aware Were you aware there was actually 11 commandments given by God to us? 11, not 10. 10 in the Old Testament given to Moses on Mount Sinai, but one given to us, the church, in the New Testament by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus says in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. 
15 years ago, I, I was working for a business and at one stage I was promoted to the national sales manager. I, I was quite excited and encouraged that the manager trusted me so much in this role, in this position. The sense of privilege overcame me and about six months on into the role, I noticed that no matter how many sales and no matter all the work that we were doing, things were falling over. Stores were complaining that they weren't receiving their orders either on time or not at all. So our reputation just wasn't good and people were very unhappy. I realized that the only way to fix this was to go into the warehouse and sort out the operations. So I spoke to the operations or the owner and asked, can I switch and take care of the operations? Because no matter what we can do, if we can't fulfill our promises, then everything else will technically make no difference. Did you know that we can be an amazing evangelist, an amazing witness for Christ in our local community? And will people come into our house, the church, it can all fall over because our house is not in order. It's broken due to many unfortunate reasons. Paul had to address many issues in his ministry to believers to lay a biblical foundation for their faith. And I'd like to use one of Paul's letters to the Corinthian church to help us better understand what biblical love is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of the angels, but did not love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and if I can understand all the secret plans and possess all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I can move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I can boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Unfortunately, churches can get caught up with the same issues. Their focus ends up being on nickels, numbers, and noise. How much money is generated, how much people are attending, and how active are the people. They're putting the carts before the horse. All oh, the signs and the wonders, the prophecy, the healings, the gifts of the Spirit in operation. Firstly, this excites me greatly because I wholeheartedly believe in the gifts of the Spirit to the church. But when these things happen and people are leaving the church left, right, and center, something is just not adding up. Verse 4 to 8, Paul goes on to say, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, always endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown language and special knowledge will become useless. But love will last forever. And then in verse 13, three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. We need a heart like Paul. A brotherly love for one another. That when people come to the church, they know that something is different. They not only can see it, but they can feel it. Can I 
simply say before I continue that as an Anglican worshiping in Christ Church Dingley, I am greatly encouraged because the first thing that I noticed was a genuine love for one another. What's happening here, though, unfortunately doesn't happen everywhere. Throughout history, we read of local governments that through their ideology have unfairly treated certain people groups. Even in Paul's day, the Roman government was so fearful that this, this thing called the church, this group of people, would grow up into this political threat that they used to send spies into the church to work out what was going on. I'd like to leave you a question as we start to wrap up. When someone comes into your church and they're there looking for a church that they would like to call home, what report would they leave with? Hopefully it's the same one that Timothy gave Paul that we read in chapter 3, verses 6. We read that Timothy brought one of good news of their faith and love. Brothers, sisters, we need to encourage one another. We need to suffer with one another, celebrate with one another. We need others around us to keep us sharp and on fire. Genuine brotherly love gives us a desire to be with one another. We are encouraged in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. If you are a Christian, then it will be in your hearts a desire to be around God's people. Church, we are living in unprecedented times during COVID. The world is watching us. Our testimony to a lost and dying world matters. Our individual testimony is a reflection of the church and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as Paul sent Timothy to find the Thessalonian church's testimony, and it was one of good reports, Paul was also preparing the Thessalonians for the coming of Christ as we read in his benediction, that their hearts may be blameless in holiness. Jesus Christ is coming back, church. Are we ready? Paul's message is more relevant today as we are coming indeed closer to the end. The end of, of a parable in Luke's chapter 18, verses 8, has always caught my attention. It finishes off with these words, But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Church, let our love for one another be a beacon to a lost and dying world. Amen. Jesus Christ is returning, church. Are your lamps full? Are your lamps ready? Let's close in prayer as I finish off with Paul's benediction. Verses 11 to 13 again. May God our Father and our Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon. 
And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God, our Father, when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Amen. I'm going to allow our brother to close us off in a word of prayer.